This is Designing Transition, a bilingual podcast about designing for systems level change toward more sustainable and equitable futures. It is also a podcast about the transitions design is taking in practice when it's concerned with the complex and interconnected challenges societies face today. Today's conversation is in English. We will now direct our Spanish-speaking listeners to the commentary in Spanish. La conversación de hoy es en inglés. Te invitamos a escuchar nuestra discusión en español acerca de esta al final del episodio. Micah Blumenthal is a designer, hip-hop radio host, and worker trustee at the Good Work Institute in the Hudson Valley. In this episode, Micah speaks to us about the inner work that's required for transitions to more just futures where power is shared more equitably. Micah is deeply embedded in place in Kingston, New York, where he's a steward of the Just Transition Movement and models worker self-directed practices. In this interview... Eric Dorn and myself, Silvana Jury, speak to Micah about his journey into deep inner reflection to develop a posture and mindset that reflects the external world he imagines possible. He speaks luminously from his examined life experiences and his trained path as a realist who looks towards Afrofuturism and mindfulness as pathways towards futures of greater possibility. We hope you are as intrigued and inspired by Micah's signal to humility, patience, and belief in change over many generations. Yeah, so Micah, thank you so much for joining us uh, here at Design Transition. Um, you're, you know, we're just finishing up, wrapping up our first season, so this will be part of our, our second season. And um, your work over the years has been really inspiring to me personally. And as I've been a doctoral student in transition design, I often think about you and the work you're doing and the way you are as a human. Um, that really embodies, I think, a lot of the processes uh, that many of us are trying to adopt into the world, or I guess embody in the world of design. So I know our listeners are going to be really intrigued to know what that might mean. <laughs> so as a way to maybe kick us off, could you, in a, you know, not, you know, somewhat brief way, um, maybe just synthesize what it is you do for our listeners? Who are you? What do you do? Oh, okay. Uh <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, okay. So I think it's important to kind of set the place because I work on a really um, kind of hyper-local kind of way. So, you know, I'm, I work and live in Kingston, New York in the Hudson Valley area. Um, and that's, so that's really where my, where my work puts me. That's where I land. That's the community that I'm a part of. That's... Um, that's what impacts me and that's what the work that I do impacts if it does, <laughs> right? Um, and I guess I'm saying that first because I really, for me personally, like that's that's where the work has to be done, right? Like it has to be happen on this level of knowing my neighbors, seeing the people that are in my community, seeing, you know, seeing them, them seeing me, right? Like this is this is where... It, it's most meaningful to me and where I think change kind of has to build from, right? Like just from really like, what are the relationships that we have? How am I showing, how am I personally showing up in my world? Um, so that feels important to kind of set that. And, you know, and I'll just also say I'm a part of a worker trustee actually at Good Work Institute. Maybe we'll get into what that means later. Um, so, And in, in Good Work Institute, our work is to re is also really kind of hyperlocal. It's in in that valley, in that area of of New York, really working to um, cultivate, connect, um, support, and illuminate people, projects, initiatives that are working on just transition in that in that area, right? Like that's what we do, and connected to that. And outside of that, and within that, um, I, I have been for some time working with and a part of a number of local organizations, 
but also just people, right? It's not not everything's an organization. Sometimes it's just someone with an idea and just working with connecting them. Um, you know, and, and and I would say kind of going back to what I just mentioned about just transition, we can get into that a little bit too, like really working um to bring those principles forward in everything, I think in everything that I'm that I'm trying to do. And and I, I and I'd also have to say, just kind of going back to like really where it lands, where it's really grounded for me, is I can't help but also think in this moment that that also just means like how I am as as a father of two, right? That it's it's there too, right? It's like in and how I raise my kids, yeah. Because if it's not if it's not if I'm not showing up in that way in like all these levels, then you know then something's amiss. I'm not even sure if I answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> It's a big question. It's a big question. Um, I I could ask more specific. That was a beautiful introduction just to kick us off. I think Um, I'm sure, you know, I think it would be interesting to talk about um, just transition at this point, unless Silvana, do you want to jump in with a follow-up question for Micah before that? No, I think our listeners would probably be curious to hear more about that. And then we can maybe dig deeper into your motivations for doing all this type of work well, first tell sure. us more yeah so you know uh, just transition not a term that it's not a term that we originated by by any means good work and student in fact we really came into that world through the work of movement generation um, an organization that's their work has really evolved out of um, climate justice and labor movement and they really helped to kind of put forth this idea of just transition, and and I'll just say, and you know, I get you know, kind of my own words on top of theirs, th- this recognition that humans maybe always have been living in a moment of transition. Certainly, right now, I think we can all say that it's pretty clear we're living in some moment of transition, right? Like the fact that we're having this, even this interview via Zoom from different places of the world because we're living in a pandemic, right? So if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now. Some moment of transition is what we're living in. But seldom, if ever, throughout history have those transitions been just. Um, We've seen one group of people with power be replaced by another group of people, but it doesn't necessarily make for just. And that that takes work. It takes real active work to bring apart, to bring about a just transition. And so at Good Work Institute, we um, adopted slightly adapted uh, the framework for movement generation. Um, So it kind of boils down to five principles that are in no particular order. One isn't any greater than the other. They're all really intrinsically intertwined. But uh, driving racial justice and social equity, democratizing communities, wealth in the workplace, advancing ecological restoration, Retaining and restoring cultures and traditions and relocalizing most production and consumption. That those together, again, together, not one more, not less, but like those together collectively um, are what's required to kind of get us to to that world, the world that we want to see, the world of that's that's actually just. And in our work at Go Work Institute, where we do a lot to kind of do workshops on those principles, to dive into them, to bring people into them to have people really kind of engage with like, how do you, how do you, how do you take that on? What kind of practices? And, and in that, like we've also identified that like, there's also a handful, like if those are the principles, there are a handful of practices that are needed as well, right? Things like um, conscious communication, creativity, mindfulness, um, nature connection, right? And then, and others that there's also things that we have to do to really um, build the fortitude um, so that way we can make those things happen. So in part, you know, in short rather, that's kind of just transition in a real nutshell. And for us as an organization, you know, one of the changes that came about right with that when we started looking at that was, you know, where nonprofit had been set up like a nonprofit the way they usually are, and that had to change. So we also went through the process of becoming a worker self-directed nonprofit, which means that the six of us who are now um, staff are all worker trustees. We collectively, you could say that we are collectively the ED. We share that. Um, it's, we've done a lot of just deep and beautiful 
work to kind of get to that point to really like unpack like where where is power how is that showing up for us how is it historically shown up for each of us how are we willing to share that what do we do to share that so it's it's been as much about writing policies and doing all that as much as it's been about really a mindful exploration into like what does that mean what does it mean as an organization where we're three people of color and three people are white and like how is that showing up for us all um what are we even as an organization of five women and, and, and one man? So just like unpacking these things to really not just, not just take it for granted. Um, because it's easy to say that we want to collaborate. Um, it's easy to say that we want to share leadership. But what practice do we have doing that? You know, it's not really a part of our culture. Um, so the, the work to really get there um on small ways just to like even how are we holding meetings like how are we really hearing all of our voices to to the big things of like well what are the decisions that we're making uh, as an organization and how do we share that and how do we how are we honest about how hierarchy just naturally shows up in us the fear that we may have of leadership or the the pride that we might take in like i'm making this decision by myself right like how do we how do we confront that in ourselves um so we can step back and allow something else to happen and kind of flourish in that space, you know, allow for uh, an honest transition to happen, which takes courage and um, a willingness to, to look at the things that we don't always like about ourselves, right? Like those things, ha- if, if we do it right, those are things that have to come up. No, yes, definitely. It's interesting um, how, the way you explain this and how you mention that um, these elements are sort of synthesized as principles and how this whole process and the, the processes that you adopt require so much self-reflection and a sort of deep insight into ourselves to truly understand all these different facets of ourselves and how we work with others. Uh, which are not always obvious and obviously they're suddenly tricky to even unconceal. Um, so when we talk about transitions and especially in transition design, we we often mention mindsets and also the role of per- the personal transformations that are also required to do this type of work because it's deeply challenging. Um, so perhaps... Maybe you have some other thoughts about that, whether you've considered that yourself. I'm sure you have based on what you were telling us. But also, where do you draw this motivation or this um, inclination? Because perhaps not everyone has a tendency to get into that type of deeply challenging self-reflection or conversation with others. Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Um, I mean... I think if personal transformation is not a part of it, then we're probably not doing it right. You know, um, you know, in, in really thinking about your question and thinking about design and like how design shows up, you know, the world is the way it is because we've designed it to be this way. Um, and I think we all have to take responsibility in that, right? It's, it's, it's easy to think that like, well, I was just born into it. Somebody else designed it this way, but we're all like playing a role in that. So like we're all kind of active participants and designers of it and in order for that to be different we actually have to assume that we have to take that responsibility a little bit we have to be like well okay well if we design it this way one we can design it different but if we're going to design it different i have to be different right like 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 fundamentally i have to show up different um it's because it's not it's easy to think that things just exist outside of us um you know, it's it's a it's a much harder realization to come to to recognize that the systems of oppression that live out there, I live out in the world, they exist because those systems of oppression live in me. And if I can't face them in me, if I can't recognize them in me, then I can't change them in me. And if I can't change them in me, I can't change them anywhere else. So, you know, I think the, this question of um, that kind of transformation and, and how we get there and how hard it is, it's all... It's all true because we're changing like, you know, it's, it's evolution, right? Like we're, we're like, we're changing um, 
our, our patterns, our, our processes, our, our ways of thinking. But if, if, if we're coming from the place of the fact that the world's not just, if we're coming from the place that these current systems aren't working, and again, that's an if, because maybe not everybody believes that, but I do, then what choice do I have but to engage in things that are going to change that? And again, and I have to start, have to start with myself first. And, and I guess part of kind of the motivation to that and, or to kind of extend, you know, my thinking on that a little bit is I, I think that the, probably one of the most fundamental issues facing humanity is the fact that we have been too young, too immature, too inexperienced to actually know how to handle power. We just, we don't. And, you know, and I remind myself that we're, we're a young species, you know, we haven't been here long. Um, so the fact that we don't know how to handle power yet is fair. But our survival and a just world is dependent on us learning how to handle power, learning how to share it, um, learning how to give it up sometimes. And I understand the resistance to that. I have it. You know, I have natural resistance to that, right? The, 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 when, you, when you have power, like it, you know, sure, <laughs> you can do, you can act, you can, you know, in accordance with your own thoughts, your own beliefs, you don't have to take a whole lot else into account, right? And to share that is um, not easy, you know? And so again, I'll bring it back to the personal for a moment that, you know, I have to examine, for me, that starts with like just examining what it means in, in my relationship with my partner, right? That like I, as, as, as a man, I, as someone who's very, has been very kind of logic, rationale kind of driven, my partner as a woman who tends, and again, I'm not making anything up, my own admins tends to be more emotionally driven. Like, but we live in a world where not only as a man do I have power, but we live in a world where like logic and reason is given more power, you know? So I gotta like, I gotta check myself and be like, well, like why, why, why am I keep trying to bring this argument that we're having back to this logical place? Like what power am I exerting in the relationship in this way? Like it serves me, like it serves me really well to be like, well, that doesn't make sense. But like, what's that? You know, <laughs> what am I doing and why am I doing that? So just like this, this constant like kind of exploration of like, how are we sharing power? I think is the heart, you know, kind of so much. And to your question of like, what motivates me is primarily selfishness and that I see myself growing. I see myself showing up as a better partner just in that example. Um, and that's not like, I don't want to paint the picture that that's easy. That's hard, right? <laughs> like most of the time, even in, even, in, even in that fight with my partner, most of the time there's still a voice in my head that's like, you could show up different here. And the, the anger, the emotion of it is like, but no, like I'm pissed. But the fact that that voice is there now is my evolution. It is my growing. It is my like moving to the space of like, oh, you can be different. Um, and I'm motivated to be different and I'm, I'm motivated to show my, show my kids something different. I'm motivated by possibility, you know, that I believe anything's possible. Just, just like as a pure, like mathematical, scientific, logical explanation, like possibility suggests it's possible. Right. So like I'm moved by that and like, and yet at the same time, I know that I live in an extractive system that has even managed to extract our imaginations from us. Right? Like, how do we liberate our imaginations? So kind of going back to like the selfishness, I feel good when I get to play in an imaginative space, when I get to live in possibility, when I get to see that I'm growing, that I'm moving in directions that before were, I, I was resistant to. It feels good. And, and I, you know, I, I have the opinion that if things don't feel good, if they're not, if we don't enjoy them, then then we won't keep doing them. So like I, I am pr primarily motivated by selfish reasons. It feels good. I should mention, since I know you, Micah, as well, that you've also had a lot of practice at this self-examination uh, as a yoga practitioner and meditator, and you run a, a radio show yourself that, uh, that offers space for people to, to check in with themselves. So is that kind of your, one of your primary, um, is that a muscle that you've built over the years that you kind of getting back to one of Silvana's questions around, you know, how, how do you do that? Um, yeah. 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 Th thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yeah. I think it's, um, 
it is a muscle I think I've worked on and, and believe in. And, and to your point about the radio show, um, doing mindfulness on the radio actually is, for me only came about in this time of COVID. I've, I've done a lot of mindfulness work with a friend of mine, her and I together in schools and other places, but really in this moment in COVID, Radio Kingston, again, local organization on the ground in Kingston, reached out to us back in March. Uh, and ever since then, we've been doing daily 15-minute sessions on the radio. We do one-hour sessions on the weekends. Um, so yeah, I do. I do believe in, in mindfulness. And, and I just want to say, especially because, you know, when you say mindfulness, a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts about it. I don't, I don't mean mindfulness in a way that necessarily looks like anything, right? That I feel like we've gotten I'm on one hand thankful that even the term is uh, a lot more prevalent now. Like you can, you can get apps to help you do it. <laughs> um, but I also want to like push, push back a little bit against the narrative that like mindfulness looks like, you know, this perfectly relaxed state, somebody sitting, usually a white woman sitting in yoga clothes, like on a, on a special clothes, special mat or cushion. Um, you know, that it's not that right. That it's, but it is flexing the muscle, as you were saying, Erica, of like checking in with myself. Like what, what, well, like beneath what I'm telling myself, like what do I actually feel? You know, what's actually there? Um, the muscle to kind of examine myself a little bit, um, to be honest. And to be honest really means being non-judgmental, right? So that way I can actually like see it and I don't have to think worse of myself or better of myself. Um, to really just kind of accept what is that? Yeah, that is a that's a muscle flexing. It takes some work to do that, and and you know I know for myself that 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 work also required throughout my life. Um, I don't know if it required, but it also came with a lot of frustration. You know, I think when I was younger, um, trying to get to that place was really frustrating to me. But you know, and it took me a little while to realize that like even the frustration was me actually just having judgment. Um, and to really like let that go allowed then just each layer of that just allowed, allowed you to go a little bit deeper um, but yeah I think it's I think it's it's why I mentioned it earlier that I think mindfulness is a necessary practice of trans of any transition transformative work right that like you don't you don't get to do that without also like holding this mindfulness piece and again I'm not even saying that that mindfulness has to look like a particular practice. I think there's lots of ways that we can kind of cultivate that, those muscles. But it is this practice of, you know, paying attention on purpose in the present moment to what's there, to what's real, um, without judgment. Beautiful. I um, I think there's a, a whole tribute, many tributaries of questions within that whole segment just now around um, Silvana's, you know, br- br- brought up the term posture and mindset. And I think when we talk about transition design, um, you know, traditional design uh, what was brought out of certainly a hyper-rational uh, way of thinking. And even though it has many elements of kind of visual and artistic expression, it's still um, rooted in kind of a linear Cartesian way of thinking. Um, and, you know, just to kind of orient our listeners to who you are as a designer, and then we can probably come back to some of these questions around how you bring it all full picture. Um, you are a designer. You started as a graphic designer at some point early on in your career, and you still, I think, identify, you can tell us, uh, wear that hat uh, of designer. Um, maybe talk about how what brought you to become a designer and um, how do you conceive of that term now? Yeah, that's a Really good question for me <laughs> because I have a funny trajectory with that. Um, I have always seen myself as as an artist, um, even though, by the way, very rarely does my art result in any tangible thing. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I've, you know, I've, I've identified that way. But I remember, I remember even being in in college, so like you know, late nineties, mid nineties going for visual arts and really like I was clear in the fact that I was not a designer. Um, and I was clear in the fact that design was part of the problem, right? Like I, I kind of thought, and I'll explain it, that like de- design by nature might actually be despicable. And what I meant by that was, is that we as, at least what I saw at the time was that we as designers, 
we're not taking responsibility for the fact that we were the ones who keep the machine looking pretty. And as long as we keep the machine looking pretty, it'll keep rolling along. And the prettier it looks, easier it is for it to just roll along and everyone just is like, oh, yes, look at the beautiful machine. And, and we're all crushed underneath it. Um, so I had a real problem with the fact that like, as designers, we weren't, we, we weren't and historically haven't taken responsibility for the role that we have played in the extractive system and the machines of that extractive system. So, but then, you know, I went on, you know, doing work and jobs I didn't like and found myself suddenly with an opportunity to kind of move into doing some graphic design and some web design work. Um, but I felt really clear that if I was going to do that, the only way I could really put my head down at night was that if I was really doing that in the service, in the service of local businesses, um, local nonprofits, and, and artists. And so that all kind of actually culminated with my moving to Kingston, um, which I'd been coming to for a long time before that. And I made sure that like everyone that I worked for were people that I met face-to-face. It was my way of kind of being accountable um, for my work and to the people that I was working for. And... And it was interesting because then that, it was really because of that that I ended up where I am now. Like, I was always into also bartering, doing things in exchange, you know, anything other than, than money, um, which led me to, you know, kind of bartering for different things, which, you know, then I would do work for this organization or that organization, or you talked to, mentioned yoga before, I, I, that's how I managed to do yoga for a while, just because like, I helped out with, you know, design because uh, I couldn't afford it. Um, but all those exchanges led me to doing more and more and being uh, a deeper part of my community. And then and then my work shifted. It shifted away from design simply in terms of, you know, web or graphic design, because in truth, you know, all that work for me, especially on a local level, was really just about helping somebody connect them to or, you know, get their vision or whatever it was to 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 where they were trying to get it to. And it was actually first, well, actually when I first met you, Erica, it was being a part of um, coming into Good Work Institute for the first time as a fellow. And I remember you and I spoke on the phone and you're like, yeah, so, you know, application, the application at the time talked a lot about your enterprise. And I had to call you back immediately. I was like, I've got a problem with this. I don't know how to do this because I don't really have an enterprise. I do all these different things, right? Because I was doing design, but all these other organizations that I was a part of. And you were like, great, answer it like that. And I was like, Okay, so I filled out the application from this like kind of broad place of all these things that I do. But it was interesting because it was in my time in that fellowship where I actually realized that I was the one who was compartmentalizing the things that I do. I was the one who was actually siloing them. So even though I was teaching yoga, um, I was just doing that in the studio context. And... It was really the work of the fellowship that, like, for me, all those worlds started to finally, like, come together. And and it was no longer that, like, I wear the design hat over here doing web and graphic design. It was really just that, like, I'm I'm an artist and the way I walk, talk, move, and breathe is, is all of that. And they're all interconnected. And and that's how I want to show up. And then And then I think that then also my thoughts about design and that what I was saying earlier about how if we're, whether we know it or not, we're all designers of this system, right? We're all kind of social architects in a way. And instead of kind of rejecting that notion, there's a, there's a way for me to take responsibility for it and then say, well, then how am I showing up? And like, where's my energy really going towards? Um, because if we're all designing all the time, then I want to be really mindful about how I'm doing that. Thank you for that. Um, it's interesting. The way that you explain the process is really clear, and, and I'm sure many listeners will probably uh, relate to that too. Uh, I think many of us do too. Uh, it's interesting how you frame, how in a way it's about changing how we understand design uh, and because our own concept, conceptions are or conceptualizations are too maybe too narrow because we do not acknowledge all these other things that as you say we are designing as well we are designing the world in so many levels 
whether we want it or not, in a way. But this type of practice that starts from a place of a sort of humility is what I see really enables you to maybe, I don't know, play with all the tools that you have. And sometimes these tools may be some technical aspects like graphic design is a sort of instrument maybe to achieve something else. And I think that is useful for especially younger designers to understand that it's not so much about the very technical details as much as it may be about the bigger transformation that those how those are applied would lead to. But uh, moving on from that, I wanted actually to bring back our attention to what you mentioned before, and I'm going to try and draw this connection between two things you mentioned. First, how the need for being aware of the present how, or being present, how things are, and then this tension with uh, acknowledging the realm of possibilities that we have, so what could be, which is, I think, crucial. It's an area that is very important for us designers. We work within that space all the time. We move from what is to what could be. Sometimes we help that process. Sometimes we may perhaps try to prevent some of the, some pathways within certain processes but in essence it is about that dialogue um what would you say about that especially because it's some sort of uh i don't know and I, i don't want to call it a contradiction but it's this sort of it's two that sometimes feel opposites yeah um i've been thinking actually <laughs> a lot about this as of late this um the value of just being present um which I really do think is tremendously value, valuable. And yet, as you're talking about like this, this, this future space and, and, and playing in that. And I think what I began to realize for myself just, just recently, the, to, to kind of uh, put to rest a, li a little bit that, that wrestling of those two places, is the, f the usual future that our energy goes towards, that, that, that we think about, that even holds a lot of anxiety and tension for us is most usually a future that's actually just us mapping out the present, right? It's like, it's, or even the past, right? Like we're, we're really looking at the future as a like one plus one equals two scenario. Like, well, we know this happened. We know this is happening. So therefore the future is probably going to be X. Um, and that, that doesn't actually get us to the place of playing and possibility. Like, how do we get to a future that's unbound by, by what has been and even what is, you know? So, and as for myself, as I started to want to, like, explore that thread, it became clearer to me that, like, I have to, it made it even more clear to me why I have to be really grounded in the present first, right? That, like, I kind of have to, like, I have to know what are the stories that I tend to just overlay, what are the traumas that I tend to just bring with me into, into the future, right? Like I have to know those in order to be able to be like, oh, this is a story. This is not actually what's here. This is not actually what's present. This is not actually what's now. And to like unload that a little bit to like put down that burden to really then open up the future in a, in a much broader capacity And I think a lot of what kind of inspired me and kind of got me to there has been just more and more thinking about Afrofuturism as a, as a concept and what it means as a, as, as a black man, which I am, like what, is it, what, is, what it means for us to, like the future hasn't been ours, right? Like the future largely has been dictated by um, white men and, and, and science fiction books and comics and movies and, and all of that. And that like, as much as the past was denied to us and the present is denied to us, the future largely hasn't been a space that we've had access to either. And so this movement to like really begin to like claim that, and again, to not, to not specifically, to not just claim it in a way that's like, this is what it has been. So like, ugh, this is what it's going to be. But to claim it in terms of like, it'll be what we want it to be. It'll look how we want it to be. And we will, we will you know, we will hold it dear and sacred. Uh, like to play in that future space, I think um, 
yeah, we have to kind of um, free ourselves a little bit from the, from the shackles of not only what's been given to us, but even more so, like, again, bring it back to, like, that deep and personal work. Like, what are, what are the ways in which I shackle myself, you know? What are the forms of oppression that live in me? And how do I, like, put those down? And to do that, I, like I said, I have to, I have to be present enough first uh, to really kind of see what's there. You know, because that, like, that's, like, that's the really, real beautiful design work is when you're unbound, you know, and you can just be like, well, my imagination is free. And now we can really start thinking about, well, how do we, how do we want it to be? If the world's going to be different than this, then like, it can be anything. And, you know, there's so much joy in playing in that space. Micah, thank you for that. Um, we've had past interviews where we've gotten into a similar discussion, but I don't think it's hit this quite this depth <laughs> in this way. Um, and I'm really grateful that you're contextualizing your experience and bringing it so close to the personal. Um, it's such an important part of how we transition. Um, and, and I think one thing that I wanted to lift up was just imagination in thinking about possibility. Um, a lot of times as designers and, and really humans, we're thinking about problems first. We Our mind immediately goes to what's wrong, what to critique. We use the term wicked problem a lot in mm. the world of transition design. Um, and I've heard a lot, and myself uh, and others, I think have, there's a question there around, um, you know, how useful rooting ourselves in problematizing everything is in getting us to something much more hopeful, imaginative, beautiful, and completely different from what's come before. And so I guess I would love to ask you and, and for our listeners to hear a little bit more about how you conceptualize time. <laughs> um, just a, a light question there. Yeah. Um, in the sense that right now we are in, it's, uh, what is it today? It's August 6th. Um, most likely our listeners will be hearing this many months from now. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. We might still be in the middle of the pandemic at that point. Um, we don't know how long this will go on and what's really ahead tomorrow. I mean, the future's now. <laughs> it's again right now. Um, so it's it's indeterminate what, you know, it'll be curious to listen back and see where, where we uh, where we're where we'll be but um you're doing transition work and you're hopeful and you're imaginative and you're creating something um out of nothing to, to a certain degree something entirely new um where do you think we'll be in months from now do you think uh and and again how do you kind of how are you thinking about time and future if if, if it's especially coming from the world of afrofuturism um and alongside that if there's, unless this gets too convoluted, I, I guess my question to add to that is what do we need to learn? Um, what skills or wisdom to, to pick up on Silvana's work are we, are needed to get us to where your imagination might be taking us, mm. is taking us? Yeah. Um, also in these fairly recently, these last couple of months, it's been interesting how many things I've been a part of that have involved some like, it's 2030 and it's 2050 and or Ulster County Transportation, the county, Kingston was in Ulster County is working on their 2045 transportation plan. I've been, so I've been a part of these places that keep asking, right? Like, what will it look like? And it's interesting for me because um, in spite of what, what I just said, um, I don't. I don't tend to think about things quite in that way, right? There's like, I don't know. To some degree, it's making the most of of the present, and and playing in that kind of like I said that that future space is for me. It's not. It's not bound by a number, right? So I'm not thinking about it quite like you know, in the year 2050. Um, but like I said, lately I've been a part of these these places where where people really are, and you know, and I guess what comes up for me when when I think about those things as I have been lately is 
That's funny because um, although I do indeed believe anything is possible and um, I don't think of myself, by the way, as an optimist. I don't think of myself as a pessimist. It's not that the glass is half full. It's not that the glass is half empty. It's just half a glass. I think of myself as a realist. And my realist perspective um, tends to bring me to a place where I think other people think of me as an optimist. And that's all my preface for what I'm going to say next, which is that because anything's possible, and because I think change, whether on a, on a large-scale level, um, communities or the globe, or even like on a personal level, I think change tends to happen in a way of um, kind of critical mass, right? So like I'll make a decision not when I'm 100% certain. I'm probably not even making decisions when I'm mostly certain, right? We all tend to make decisions when we're certain enough, right? Like we're certain enough about taking that next step, which just means that like who knows where the shift was, but the shift happened. That like now we're like, okay, you know, I'm going to step out. And and I think that's kind of that same way for us as as, as, a, as a whole, that like massive change tends to happen when uh, there's enough, there's just enough energy there. But I've also recognized that like I don't know where, I have no idea what that number is. I don't, you know, is that 70% of the population? I tend to think it's probably less than half. Okay, let's just say I think it's 30% of the population. Well, A, I don't really know what that number is. B, I also don't know where we are in relationship to that number, which means <laughs> that I might as well work every day like we're one person away. Because we just might be one person away from like everything changing, right? Because we might be. And I preface that earlier because, again, I don't think I'm an optimist. And I don't think I'm hopeful. That's just like, that's just for me, just realistic steps of what could be possible. But <laughs> I'm saying all that to say that, you know, I also wholeheartedly think that our, our future involves a lot of pain. You know, that kind of going again back to the personal rarely when do we when we make changes for ourselves rarely if ever do they come with rainbows and sparkles and unicorns right the biggest changes at least for me the biggest changes in my personal life they came hard <laughs> they were hard hard lessons learned um and they weren't pretty at the time and i think the same thing f- is true for us as in our evolutionary kind of process that we've got some We've got some darkness still to fight our way through. We've got some pain to make our way through. But like I said, I also believe that's all along the path to a shift and a change larger than we've than we've ever seen, you know, into a future into the future that, you know, that I like to see. So, you know, I don't I don't know where that is in terms of a time frame. And in some ways it doesn't matter. You know. All I know is that like every day I just I just gotta keep working like there's one person left and and everything will shift um and the skills the skills that you're talking about like to get there i think the skills are it's like the first one that even came to mind when you said it is patience right like and patience is a funny word because i don't you know when i look at the world now i don't i don't mean patience in terms of like a sitting back and a waiting but i do mean a patience in terms of are we prepared to go to like go the distance you know, what we see happening right now, I think it's important to remember that like the civil rights movement wasn't fought in a few months. It wasn't fought in a year, even a couple of years, right? Like we're talking about an ongoing effort in that same way that like we're, we're all feeling like, you know, we're in transition. Um, some of us are feeling like we're on the precipice of, of real change. But I hope we're prepared to go the distance because I hope we have the patience for that. Because uh, change sometimes takes a while, and and that's why it still becomes really important to like hold, liberate. It becomes really important to liberate our imaginations in this process, you know. And so, and what that means for me is that, especially as well, I guess I'll say as a designer, is I don't know what it looks like next. I'm not even actually trying to know. I think myself and. All my friends, the people who I whose opinions I hold really dear, uh, I think we've I think we're actually all too steeped in what has been. I don't think our brains can actually fully conceive, you know, of what's kind of beautifully next. But I do think that we can do everything we can to prove possibility. So when those after us come along, 
and they're less steeped in it than we are, when they start thinking about what's next, they're going to be like, oh, I remember, I saw examples. I saw examples of people who did different. I saw examples of cracks in that system. I saw permaculture and how that looks. I saw, you know, shared leadership and ways that that looks. I saw true, deep collaboration. You know, I saw examples of, of love and imagination and, and, and they'll build what's next off of that. But if you trusted me to figure out what's next, I guarantee you I'd get it wrong. You know, like I think most of us are trying to break outside a box and, and then, you know, one day we look up and we're like, oh, there's four quarters around me. <laughs> like we've just built a different box um, because that's just all we know, you know? I have, I have, I'm speechless. <laughs> so beautiful. Um, I was just thinking, I had this thought about how life, how you're describing um, transition design as a relay process, really. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's beautiful mm. to think about it in the, in all the terms you just did. Um, and to know that it's, it's always going to be taken up in new, in new ways, based, building on from what, contributions um, were brave enough and imaginative enough to take now. Um, Silvana, do you have any, any thoughts for our final moments here? Mm, I was thinking as you were talking, Micah, that, yeah, the, the need for openness and really trust these processes and trust others. So basically going back to our, how our conversation started, how all this work needs to happen in collaboration and with deep uh, connections with others um, to really, for us to truly develop maybe a sense and even a capacity to deal with that, these deeper questions and challenging processes of transformations internally, but also uh, as, as parts of our community and how this community doesn't only extend to other human beings, but also living beings and how we can even draw from the wisdom that exists in nature, as you were mentioning, these processes, challenging processes of change and uh, going through crisis is what we see in humans, but also in nature as well. And we need to just become more comfortable with accepting that because it's part of this sort of growth, growth in this sense, not as in accumulation. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I was just thinking about that and how your words, as Erica said, are really inspiring and let us see perhaps how the things that we're thinking about and talking about can be um, said more in many different ways, more poetically, more uh, perhaps reaching us to, into like deeper internal levels, uh, even spiritually. But then also maybe with this sort of optimism and the need for engaging fully with being more creative and imaginative. So I don't know, maybe this is sort of general reflection based on our conversation. Thank you very much for this. It's really very thought-provoking and be beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really, yeah, it's been really nice to share. I really appreciate it. Thank you as well, Micah. I, it, you're making me realize our, um, in terms of relay, um, you're sparking the need for an interview with someone who's worked in conflict transformation and mediation. I think that's also a skill you just really named there, which is the, yeah, it's not all unicorns and sparkles that we as humans also uh, will wanna continue to learn how to work with conflict as a form of transformation. So thank you for that reminder and all the other beautiful reminders. Um, thank we you. can't wait for our listeners to to listen to this. And so where can they find you if they want to, how can they find you? Good, goodorganinstitute.org. Yeah. Um, wait, how, how else can people find me? Um, they can always, you can, you can listen to radiokingston.org from anywhere. There's an app and I do a show every Friday night called hip hop One Hundred and One. So that's one way. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks Micah. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks, Silvana. Nice to meet you. And you. Hola Marisol, ¿cómo estás? Eh, justo hoy vamos a hablar de la entrevista que le hicieron Silvana y Erika eh, a Micah Blumenthal, eh, que trabaja y vive en Kingston, en Nueva York, y justamente tiene una práctica hiperlocal, ¿no? Él, él es diseñador, pero no ha practicado como diseñador en los últimos años, más bien eh, se ha desenvuelto y ha trabajado como... Eh, en cuestiones de impacto en la comunidad y de desarrollo de nuevas técnicas de eh, producción hiperlocal, eh, además de ser eh, fellow y trabajar para el Good Work Institute. Entonces, eh, pues les vamos a contar un poco de lo que, de lo que platico con Silvana y con Erika. Así es. Eh, hola, Sofía. Espero que estés bien. Y sí, eh, muchas cosas muy interesantes tocó en, en, esa, en esta conversación que tuvieron con Silvana y, y Erika. Maika pues hizo mucho énfasis en este aspecto de eh, transiciones justas en el, en el ambiente hiperlocal en el que está trabajando, ¿no? Y cuáles son como las relaciones entre las transiciones justas y el lugar y cómo eh, ellos... Eh, dentro del trabajo que él hace, aplican los principios de las transiciones justas. Entonces, tal vez sería bueno que pasáramos, diéramos como que una lista de cuáles son las transiciones justas y, y a partir de eso podamos empezar nuestra, nuestra propia conversación. Sí, súper. Me, me parece perfecto. Creo que eh, de forma muy puntual justo menciona eh, cuáles son estos cinco principios que forman parte de una transición justa en donde ninguno tiene eh, mayor valor que otro. Todos pesan de misma de misma forma y no puede suceder eh, uno sin el otro. No están todos como interconectados y, y se tejen, se entrelazan. Eh, una de ellas es la justicia racial. ¿No? Eh, la segunda es la democratización del trabajo y de las comunidades. La tercera es empujar por una restauración ecológica. Y la cuarta, el mantenimiento y restauración cultural y de tradiciones. Y finalmente, la relocalización de la producción y del consumo, hablando justamente de, de una producción y un consumo local, ¿no? en donde de verdad podamos ver estos ciclos de impacto eh, de forma como más, más puntual. No sé si, si hay alguno de esos puntos que a ti te, 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 hace, te hace más ruido, se te hace más relevante. Pues más, más que nada, eh, no necesariamente uno de los puntos, sino todo el, el punto en común que todos están tocando a la vez, que es algo que él mencionó, eh, que es una parte muy importante de su trabajo, que es el poder, ¿no? Las relaciones de poder y cómo las relaciones de poder eh, tocan cada uno de los principios de las transiciones justas y cómo eh, como organizaciones tiene que haber una exploración consciente de estas relaciones de poder y cómo uno por medio de la práctica tiene que estar eh, confrontando ciertos aspectos del poder y cómo uno puede ser eh, honesto y, y para que las para que las transiciones justas sucedan eh, y en esta honestidad tiene que caber mucho el aspecto de que eh, tenemos que confrontar las cosas que no nos gustan acerca de nosotros mismos. Entonces a mí en especial me gustó mucho esa parte que él estaba eh, subrayando porque pues entra, de uno, de, 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 entra, entra de, dentro de mi... Eh, interés particular en mi investigación, ¿no? Como este intercambio entre lo personal y lo colectivo como una forma de transformación. Eh, dijo algo muy, que, que me pareció bastante profundo, que es, eh, mencionaba como que el mundo es como es porque nosotros lo diseñamos de esa forma. 
Entonces, ¿cómo ese diseño que nosotros hicimos con cierta intención, pues eh, nos termina diseñando cómo hacemos nuestras prácticas nosotros y entrar un poquito en, esto de, en estos conceptos de diseño ontológico, ¿no? Y, y luego también menciona, si fuéramos a diseñar de una forma diferente, nosotros mismos tenemos que ser diferentes. No sé qué opinas tú acerca de eso que estaba mencionando él. Definitivamente, creo que concuerdo con, con lo que mencionas, ¿no? Eh, es una parte importante del diseño y sobre todo de cómo estamos practicando el diseño hoy en día en, en este marco del, del diseño para las transiciones, en donde si de verdad nos queremos imaginar o queremos empujar por formas diferentes de hacer las cosas, pues tenemos que empezar un poco como por uno uno mismo eh, y definitivamente creo que está eh, ligado ¿no? a esta idea de que todos somos eh, estos arquitectos sociales ¿no? eh, y que estamos constantemente diseñando y por ende tenemos que ser como muy cuidadosos y muy atentos a la forma en la que justamente diseñamos y practicamos, eh, pues ya sea desde... Una, una práctica de diseño eh, tradicional, ¿no? Hasta nuestro día a día y nuestra vida eh, diaria, ya sea individual y colectiva. Creo que una cosa interesante es que él extiende esta noción eh, hacia su pues su trabajo como instructor de yoga también, en donde justamente eh, trata de darle mucho énfasis en, en esta idea del mindfulness, entre comillas, ¿no? En esta atención eh, a lo que está sucediendo, a lo que requiere la gente con la que está en el momento, cuáles son justamente estas relaciones de poder entre esas personas. Eh, entonces creo que, que, que es bastante interesante porque toma conceptos, ¿no? Que entendemos en diseño y los extiende mucho más allá de lo que entendemos o podríamos conceptualizar como diseño per se. Entonces, sí, sí creo que creo que tiene mucho valor. Sí, totalmente. Y eso que estás diciendo de extenderlo a tus otros ámbitos de la vida, ¿no? No es esta separación. O sea, no que queramos estar trabajando siempre, sino eh, el ser un poco coherentes, no solamente en nuestro trabajo, sino en nuestra vida personal. Está diciendo cómo él también como vive estos principios en su, en su, en su vida familiar, con sus hijos, o creo que tiene un hijo, eh, y cómo... Esos, a, a mí me pareció esos ejemplos personales una forma muy poderosa de decir eh, este es el cambio que necesitamos hacer y es un cambio que nos afecta en todos los ámbitos porque si no, no puede haber una transformación real. Las transformaciones reales son aquellas que se viven al día en, en las experiencias de la vida cotidiana, ¿no? En la vida diaria. Y que que tienen que ser también con un cierto disfrute al mismo tiempo y una combinación entre lo racional y lo emocional, que él también estaba hablando de cómo eh, en su vida familiar él eh, pues tiene cierta tendencia a, a escuchar más hacia su lado racional y muchas veces eh, al entrar en diálogo con su pareja se da cuenta de que él ámbito emocional de una misma situación eh, puede ser puede hacer una situación mucho más rica que solamente tratándolo de analizar de una forma racional y eso le ha ayudado mucho también a aprender a cómo eh, implementar ese tipo de pensamiento y de sentimiento en su práctica también. Entonces es muy bonito ver cómo entran estas partes que de estos aprendizajes pues, de la vida diaria, de tu vida familiar y cómo se transforman y se transmutan a tu trabajo y del, del, este, del trabajo a la vida familiar también. Entonces es bonito ver, es bueno y muy poderoso creo yo ver esos ejemplos y cómo se conectan. Definitivamente. Y creo que justo si, si nuestros radioescuchas eh, o podcast escuchas quieren ver un poco más de su trabajo pueden justamente entrar al sitio web del Good Work Institute el cual vamos a poner en, 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 el, en la página y también eh, es justo eh, tiene un programa de radio ¿no? en, en Kingston en Nueva York entonces también poder, podremos este, escucharlo ahí y poner un link a eso Súper. Pues muchas gracias, Marisol. No, gracias a ti. Y pues eh, nos escuchamos pronto. 
Gracias por acompañarnos en Diseño en Transición. Este podcast fue presentado por Silvana Churi, Erika Dorn, Marisol Ortega Payanés y Sofía Bosch Gómez. La producción de audio fue realizada por Thomas Yun. Síguenos en Twitter en arroba deantransition. También puedes visitar nuestro sitio web tinyurl.com slash deantransition, donde puedes suscribirte al podcast ya sea en iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify o tu aplicación favorita. Nos vemos en el próximo episodio y que viva la transición. Thank you.